Welcome to the Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians podcast. GSASEP represents emergency physicians who work in the federal government, including active duty military, National Guard, and military reserves, as well as the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service, and other federal agencies. Our mission is advancing emergency care for America's heroes. In this podcast, we bring you lectures and conversations with leaders in federal emergency medicine to help you better care for your patients and lead your departments. The views expressed on this podcast are personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Defense, any branch of the military, or the federal government, and they do not constitute endorsement of any product by any of these entities. Hello, GSASEP, and uh, thank you for joining us for our talk regarding the DCR team concept. Uh, DCR, of course, stands for Damage Control Resuscitation, which I think of as sort of all of the trauma management uh, that occurs in tactical combat casualty care prior to the patient receiving surgical care. Uh, the DCR team concept that we want to tell you about is our proposal to bring more advanced and sort of nuanced DCR care farther forward on the battlefield, um, as far forward as possible, ideally. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Who, who are we and, and why are we talking about this? Um, I'm Dan Burlhart. I'm an Army 62 Alpha Emergency Physician. Uh, my colleague, Eric Thronson, is an Army 66 Tango Emergency Trauma Nurse. Uh, Eric and I have been deploying together for about five years now, uh, most recently with the Erst Mission Supporting Special Operations Command Africa. And throughout those five years, we've been uh, refining and testing a set of TTPs that evolved into this concept that we refer to just simply as the DCR team. And the intent, the intent of those teams is to accomplish the thing that we're most passionate about, and that is bring high-quality emergency department-level resuscitative care as close to the point of injury as possible for our warfighters. So these Disclaimer slides, we've all seen them a million times, but in this case, I really do mean it. Uh, the views here that we're talking about really are not policy or even widely held beliefs within the DOD, but Eric and I think they should be. Uh, and if we're really serious about reducing preventable deaths on the battlefield, we think employing emergency medicine professionals, doctors and nurses in the manner we're describing could have a significant impact. Um, but none of this is doctrine, none of this is policy, and none of this is, is a sort of accepted dogma at this point. So the purpose of what we're talking about is number one, to, to tell the story of what we've been doing, share our successes, our failures, and, and the hope to be that some of you can take this, this sort of initial effort and move forward with it and create something uh, bigger and better and more effective. Because um, uh, you know, we believe that this concept uh, should expand outside of the special operations community where it's currently being used and sort of being employed across the force where appropriate to deliver the, the best care that we can uh, for our service members. 
So what exactly is our story? What did we do? Um, well, as part of the, the Earth program uh, in our uh, East Africa area, we took an emergency physician, an emergency trauma nurse, and we embedded them uh, with a maneuver element uh, and augmented our four special operations medics. And you can see this is our, our medical treatment team here. Um, and we went out on grand, ground combat missions, uh, lasting anywhere from a few hours um, to a few weeks. Um, and augmented the, the medical capability of that team with, again, emergency department level resuscitative sort of knowledge, skill, uh, equipment, and put it not only at the point of injury, but at the time of injury as well, uh, which I think is an important distinction because we can throw uh, advanced resuscitation teams onto aircraft and fly them out to the point of injury to pick a patient up. But you've already lost some time at that point. And those minutes may be critical, especially for the types of advanced resuscitative capabilities that we're advocating for. Things like advanced airway, reboa, emergency resuscitative thoracotomy, uh, more robust use of blood products. All those things have a very finite window of minutes, really, uh, where they can potentially make a difference. And so having the people to provide those uh, procedures, those sort of augmented skill sets, there when the damage happens, uh, we, we think is important. So the idea of putting advanced care um, far forward isn't necessarily a new idea. Um, I think mil military medicine has always tried to balance the risk of getting physicians and advanced medical care as close to the casualty um, and the point of injury as possible um, with you know the, the life-saving benefits that they they provide. Um, so there's always a, a kind of a risk benefit analysis that goes into that. Um, but using small, highly mobile um, teams like this is, is something that has been done um, across various organizations, um, both in the United States and internationally for, for several years, um, particularly in support of special operations. Um, and they have been uh, very successful uh, doing so. Uh, but those teams are um, few and far between um, and, and they're in, in high demand. So um, they can't be everywhere all the time. Um, and that is just one or a few uh, kind of team concepts and, and constructs that have been created that aren't necessarily the right thing for all environments. So you have to you know, be able to look at where you're going to be and the kind of mission that you're going to support um, in order to create the best uh, sort of team um, to support those, those kinds of operations. So in East Africa, that was born out of the need for um, sort of this far forward, highly mobile, flexible team that was able to travel from place to place in uh, the, the resource limited environment of East Africa. Um, and uh, so the medical military medical community in East Africa identified that there were no existing or available teams that were going to be able to, to fill that gap at that time. Um, and that the conventional teams were not necessarily going to be able to uh, work in that space either. Um, you know, the, the theater in East Africa is, is also complicated, not just by uh, time and distance, but logistically it's a far more immature theater and certainly more immature than the theater that we know um, that exists in CENTCOM or has existed in the last several years. 
So there are far fewer troops, far fewer resources with much smaller footprints. They're supporting a much larger area of operations. Um, and in particular, um, there are much fewer air mobility assets and air evacuation assets. Um, and their capabilities and their capacities may, may vary from place to place as well. And so out of that sort of identified need uh, in East Africa, the, the concept for Erst was born, the Emergency Resuscitative uh, Surgical Teams Africa were first fielded in 2016 to support these very austere environments um, and be mobile, able to go uh, where they were needed um, with limited support uh, and perhaps without any uh, air medical evacuation assets um, to augment them. Um, and initially, when these teams were created, the, the focus was on mobility and proximity to the troops who were at risk of being injured uh, over capability. We, we sacrificed sort of what the normal capability of a surgical team in CENTCOM over the last decade had been um, in order to get those surgical assets closer uh, to the troops who might need them. Um, but as happens over time, the theater did slightly mature, the footprint slightly increased, and uh, things sort of progressed and matured. And, uh, one thing we do want to point out is uh, the Erst, not just flexible and mobile, but it is a highly modular team. So uh, when we talk about our DCR concept, that is one subset of the Erst. So um, Erst consisted of a DCR team, which was an ER physician and an ER nurse, a damage control uh, surgery team, and then uh, another CSET or a critical care and route transport element. And each of these three uh, subsets are able to operate independently of each other. So the DCR team can break away and do their mission. Uh, DCS can stay in a, in, a, in a position and still do surgery. CSET can go off and transport uh, all by themselves independently of the other teams. And um, each element is able to provide um, some redundant uh, capability. Um, DCS can still provide resuscitation. CSET can still provide uh, resuscitative care. DCR can, uh, can provide uh, transport if needed and so can DCS. Um, so there, there's some uh, interchangeability there. In addition, the, the personnel could also change. So uh, Dan could have uh, broken away and jumped on to uh, a critical care transport um, and flown a patient uh, if he needed to. The same for me. Um, our ICU nurse could have taken them on position if needed to. And that's a product of, uh, of, of cross-training, really. and, and uh, and understanding the expectation that you might need to step into a role that is outside of, of um, outside of your norm. Uh, in addition, so DCR, um, we could operate independently, um, meaning we could be our own standalone medical asset. Um, we could provide point of injury care and en route care from the point of injury to the role two all by ourselves, um, or we could augment um, organic medical assets on the ground, so the soft medics, um, or we could augment uh, the aeromedical um, flight paramedics as well if they if they had those. Um, so uh, you need to be, or we were really concerned with being both flexible and interoperable. So, so 
progress. Um, I have that in quotation marks for for a reason. Uh, you see in the next slide uh, that this is this sort of where the Earth concept started. It was a mobile operating room set up on litter stands. You know, on the on the leeward side of an armored vehicle. And over time, uh, that sort of progressed. Uh, you know, we went from these litter stands um, to you know throwing up a, a small uh, surgical tent, uh, as you can see on the next slide. And then that tent became more robust and, and filled in, and within some HESCO barriers and you know some protective uh, uh, wire around it. And then eventually, we we ended up in this purpose-built sea uh, hut that was designed to be an operating room. And with that facility came more stuff, an X-ray machine, autoclave sterilization, uh, a plasma thaw for blood products. We even had PCR COVID testing on our uh, last iteration. And those things increased the capabilities, but it, it flipped that paradigm uh, that Erst had initially been founded on, where I said, you know, uh, flexibility and proximity were prioritized over capability. You know, once we had those capabilities, um, they essentially functioned to, to anchor the surgical team to this fixed location. Um, it, it becomes difficult to leave behind all those extra capabilities um, and, and move forward. So that modularity of DCR team, DCS team, CSET team, that sort of degraded over time is really just span of a few years um, to where we started to feel tied to um, a this to this fixed site to this outstation. You know, as time went on and the theater matured, and we became uh, more of a fixed facility asset, our ability to be close to that point of injury um, really decreased. Um, so. You know, as we said, when you have an OR, you want to use the OR, you want to use all the stuff that's in the OR because it provides such a great capability to the patient. But when all you have is a backpack, um, then operating out of that backpack seems second nature because that's all you have. Um, and, and being able to do that in a far forward uh, location um, seems pretty straightforward. Um, so ultimately you have a trade-off there. And, and so we saw, uh, you know, over time, uh, we really stopped becoming uh, what Erst had originally been intended for. So our DCR concept, um, we, uh, if the team is continually static um, and anchored to a fixed location all the time that has a lot of capability, then where is that capability gap that a conventional world two uh, couldn't fill. What is the difference between uh, this special operations team that was put together um, and a conventional FST? Um, could they not also just sit there just as well as you could? What sets you apart from from those conventional teams? Uh, and so we we think that uh, the DCR um, in this sort of soft medical team uh, should be designed to accompany the ground force. Um, as far forward as the objective, right? As far forward as the X and to be able to provide uh, advanced resuscitative care as early in the casualties course of care as possible and as tactically feasible. Um, so there isn't always a role for providing very advanced resuscitative care at the point of injury, just because uh, that would that would present a tactical liability that doesn't make 
sets, but there uh, could be certainly a lot of circumstances where you do have the time and you do have the security uh, to provide those kinds of advanced um, resuscitative techniques that they casually might need it in a very time sensitive manner. Um, especially when you're so far removed from um, medical evacuation assets and you're so far from uh, a DCS role too. Uh, but you also don't, you don't want to be a tactical liability on the battlefield. So um, we're all medical providers. We're not soft operators. Um, but if you're going to operate this far forward and you're going to support these kinds of teams, you need to know uh, how to move like they do. You need to know how to be highly mobile. You need to know more than just the medicine piece. Uh, you have to be able to, to work seamlessly and integrate seamlessly into those teams. Um, in addition, you know, the, the soft medic is very highly trained and they're very good at what they do. The DCR team, however, provides not just advanced capabilities that the DCR med or that the soft medic is never going to be able to do. Um, but we also provide a great deal of experience, um, that the, that the soft medic doesn't necessarily have. Um, so, you know, we, we do trauma care and resuscitation all day, every day. That's all we do. Um, so if we can take that and we can adapt that to the austere uh, environment, uh, I think we can we can really make a difference, especially when you're talking about that tyranny of distance, um, where you you might potentially have to sit on a patient for for quite some time, um, either because evacuation is not available or because it is not tactically feasible. So, um, this is this is us, and this is us going back to kind of what Earth was originally envisioned to be. Uh, the, the roots of Erst, if you will. Um, so these are some patients that were involved in an IED blast um, uh, far forward out on an operation. And as it turned out, um, these patients were not able to be evacuated immediately um, from the battlefield. Uh, and so we did have to sit on these patients for, for some time. Uh, there were multiple patients um, and we were able to employ um, Kind of our advanced resuscitative techniques, not and not just um, procedures and skill sets, but also um, diagnostic capability and experience to be able to manage these highly complex multi-system trauma patients um, for a, an extended period of time um, on the battlefield. So, you know, you saw in previous slides we had um, our our sort of CCP set up in a purpose-built swan hut inside of a hesco barrier behind c wire um, and this is an example of uh, you know a hastily built ccp uh, that we set up immediately following um, you know contact with the enemy um, where we were able to you know take those those fixed facility concepts and and put them here into uh into a far forward um you know tactical situation um, so this is a really far cry from where we had been uh, at Erst a couple of years ago. Uh, and, and, and so here we are in a CCP on the side of a partially filled HESCO barrier um, immediately following an attack. And, and our ability to, to be there on the battlefield 
uh, that far forward ease the burden or some of the burden from those soft operators who functioned as soft medics as well in that situation so that they could focus less on the medicine and focus more on getting the mission completed. And we could worry about um, sort of the medicine piece at that particular time. Yeah, and I think that's an, an important, uh, you know, thing to point out is that our our combat medics, whether soft medics or conventional medics, most of them wear a dual hat where they are expected to be war fighters and medical providers. And so when you're operating with with a small team, you know, a platoon sized or smaller element um, and you can offload uh, that medical requirement off of those dual-hatted medics and allow them to be warfighters when necessary, uh, and, and you handle the, the medical treatment, I think that is a, a big uh, plus for the, the ground force commander. Um, so what, what, what do you, you offer as a DCR team? You know, um, you know advanced skill sets are sort of what, what we push is that our combat medics, especially our soft medics, are are phenomenal and, and can do amazing things. But um, there are there's a limit to their capabilities. There's a limit to the amount of training uh, time that they can dedicate to their medical tasks versus their warfighter tasks. Um, and there's a limit to the amount of experience that they had. You know, generally, the the medic who is out there providing care at point of injury is relatively junior um, and uh, especially uh, compared to um, you know a lot of our emergency physicians emergency nurses that are out there who have years of experience um, that, that makes uh, a, a huge difference um, and you can go to the next slide um, these these are some of the specific capabilities that, that we, uh, provided with our damage control resuscitation team. And these are things that we felt it was important to be able to lay out uh, to the ground force commanders that we were working for to say, look, uh, these are the things that we can do that your medics can't can't necessarily do. Um, and, and we'll go into sort of these in a couple of subsequent slides, but that last bullet is the biggest one. I mean, it, it's really about experience, trauma experience, experience with transporting patients, experience with mass casualty incidences. It's, it's, it, it doesn't matter how robustly your medics are trained. Um, many of them, most of them over the course of a career will see fewer critically ill patients and manage fewer critically ill patients than, you know, a senior emergency medicine resident does in a year or, you know, a new ER nurse does in a year. Um, and so that, that level of experience just um, can't be replicated easily. And so that's one of the main capabilities that we think we add. Um, you know, advanced airway, uh, this is, this is one patient you see, you know, we're working under, under lights outside, um, with a, a save two transport vent, but th this guy's orally intubated. Um, if we go to the next slide, um, this is another patient who, uh, this is back at the fixed roll two, um, about to undergo surgery, but this patient as well was orotrachially intubated by, by our DCR team. And um, that's not 
sort of standard TC3 airway management. Um, had we not had a DCR team there, both of these patients would have received cricothyrotomies, uh, you know, almost certainly. And so we can have an academic discussion about the, you know, the risk benefit pros cons of cricothyrotomy versus superglottic airway versus RSI. But the fact is there's at least a subset of patients who could receive oratracheal innovation on the battlefield. And for these two guys, um, at least it resulted in one less war wound that they needed to recover from. And so we think that advanced airway um, is, is, of, uh, is definitely something to weigh in the risk benefit of, of employing these DCR teams. <clears throat> so another big piece is blood. Blood is always a huge logistical concern uh, wherever you go. Um, so the teams that we support uh, primarily relied on um, a limited amount of fresh whole blood that they could carry forward um, in golden hour boxes. Um, however, you know, as I said, they carried only a few units. And outside of that, uh, they relied on um, sort of a, a Rolo-esque or um, fresh whole blood body transfusion uh, scheme. And, and that's fine. Um, and we absolutely need to um, employ and implement those strategies. Uh, those are critical. Um, being able to carry cold stored whole blood forward is an excellent option and is certainly much more um, economical in terms of time and tactics. Um, having golden hour boxes that you can take forward is perfect, except when you need to do a mission that lasts more than a couple of days. And in that case, you need some other better option. Um, our DCR team was able to take um, our equipment and uh, devise you know, a couple of uh, novel solutions in order to, to store and transport um, a couple dozen uh, cold stored units um, with the ground force and be able to use it uh, whenever we needed. And in fact, did, did use it, um, and it and it was immediately available. So, um, you know, it might take you, it's going to take you at least 20 minutes probably to get a unit of whole blood using a roll-up program. Um, and in some instances, it might take you uh, equally as long, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half or longer, depending on the tactical situation to get blood flown in um, if you don't otherwise have it available. So being able to take these, this many units as far forward um, and store them sustainably um, was, was key. Um, and these teams would not have been able to, um, to do this you know, without our support. Uh, in addition, uh, having a DCR team on the ground and one that you can integrate seamlessly with um, with the ground force and with the uh, the evacuation asset um, provides a, a pretty key capability of being able to have seamless continuity of care. So uh, this is a casualty who is being offloaded from uh, a Kazovac uh, asset the DCR team was able to provide care for that casualty on the ground at the point of injury 
moments after injury, resuscitate that patient on the ground, continue care in the air, um, augmenting the flight paramedics, hand off care to our own DCS team, and then continue care with that DCS team at the fixed role two facility. Um, so being able to provide insight into this casualties, both injuries, mechanism of injuries, course of care that they received on the ground, um, and trending that patient's status um, throughout their continuum of care through surgery and, and possibly even post-surgery um, is, is pretty huge um, and, frankly, probably a lot safer um, than the sort of handoff shuffle that we often see trying to provide care to the patient, doing a, a hasty handoff under the rotor wash um, to a flight medic that, you know, some things might get left out or, or be unknown. And then depending on the tactical situation, that flight medic might also give a hasty handoff under the rotor wash to some provider um, while that casualty is being offloaded so they can go back and fly and pick up more casualties. Um, so. You know, this is a specific example of this general principle of, of you know, advanced uh, medical care. And it's not necessarily all um, combat trauma. Um, there are uh, a lot of things that a DCR team, as we envision it, is more uh, capable and, and equipped to treat uh, than our, our, our combat medic uh, contingent. This is Eric. Uh, that's a, a juvenile black mamba um, that, uh, that we killed in a, a area where we were operating. Troops were sleeping nearby. Um, and so the, the point of this picture is that we were able to carry, bring forward anti-venom capability um, for in we worked in an area operations that had some of the most venomous snakes in the world and the flight time to bring a patient who was snake bitten back to the fixed facility um, was less than the amount of time that it typically takes a black mamba to to kill an adult human and so we were able to bring that anti-venom capability and the knowledge and experience um, required to use it because it's a pretty dangerous drug really to administer, we're able to bring those with us to the objective, to the point of potential uh, risk to our, our operators. Um, and, you know, this is an example, I think, similar to Reboa, where could we teach our medics to do this? Yes. How much um, effort is required to teach that medical ex expertise to an operator versus how much effort does it take to teach the tactical expertise necessary to bring a medical professional to this point um, becomes, becomes what we have to balance in the scales. Um, other advanced diagnostic sort of scenarios, you know, bring ultrasonography um, forward um, is, is helpful. This is, you know, uh, one of us uh, diagnosing a, a nerve injury uh, after a, a penetrating wound uh, in, a, in one of our host nation partner force patients. Um, that's something that, again, is, would be very difficult to impart that skill set to a, a combat medic. Um, and then 
the the next slide I think is potentially the the, the sexiest capability add that a DCR team uh, brings. I'm not sure that it is the most important one, however, but. I'm not sure if you can really even make it out in this slide, but down there in the red circle, you can see a, a Reboa catheter uh, emerging from the, the groin of this patient who's being uh, dropped off from evacuation from point of injury. Our, our DCR team was able to bring Reboa to point of injury um, at time of injury. And uh, as far as we know, is the first instance of employing it. And, and there's a, you know, the, the case reports, uh, in, in process and be pending. So I won't bother going into the details of the scenario, but the, the real point here is that we need to be able to talk to our ground force commanders about what capabilities can be added uh, in terms that they're able to, to understand and process and use in a risk benefit analysis of whether it makes sense in a given scenario for a given mission with a given unit to bring these DCR teams forward or, or not. And, you know, there is some additional medical training that, that I think is necessary. I, I don't think that you can pluck um, a hospital-based emergency medicine provider out and say, well, you have everything that you need to know to go out and work on your knees in the dirt um, in this sort of scenario. And I guess this would be my sort of short list of recommendations, you know. Uh, recommendation number one, two, and three are, are nursing skills. Um, you know, we think of a sort of traditional nursing skills. For me as an ER physician, those were some of the, the, that was the steepest learning curve for me was medication administration, getting better at IV starts, um, doing sort of patient care tasks, those things that sort of bleed into prolonged field care. Um, all, all of those things need to be within your skill set and within within your purview. Um, additionally, aeromedical evacuation, if you're going to be at point of injury, as Eric was saying earlier, earlier one of the greatest benefits is that um, being at point of injury, you're able to accompany the patient through evacuation to the next level of care. And so you need to be able to jump on that helicopter and provide care. Um, and the, the JAC, the Joint and Route Critical Care course, um, is, is something I would highly recommend for anyone who's going to be on one of these DCR type missions. And then, you know, the understanding the TC3 sort of specific equipment. You know, we all are fairly comfortable with our hospital-based ventilators and monitors and, and, and tidal CO2 detectors and everything, but making sure that you're, you know, facile with um, whichever, you know, save vents or the, the impact vents or whatever it is that you are equipped with um, is, is another specific training thing that I would certainly encourage you to undergo. I think too, just still speaking on this slide. Um, so tests, you know, that, that first bullet, all those nursing skills are, are probably important for, for the physicians who don't necessarily uh, do those every day. I think in, in the type of setting that we're talking about as well, if you're going to take somebody who is not a physician, if you're going to take an emergency nurse, perhaps, um, or you're going to take a special operations combat medic with you, um, that provider, that clinician also needs additional medical training to fill some of those gaps, um, 
in, in these type of settings, all of us, no matter kind of what your role is, a medic, a physician, a nurse, operate at the greatest extent of our scope of practice. So um, that means that I, for instance, might be doing something in these kind of settings that I'm not normally going to be doing in the emergency department um, where I typically work. Um, I think that we sometimes don't give a lot of credence to that, um, but uh, being able to be facile with some of those skills, some of those advanced skills that we might not necessarily be doing, it can be pretty critical, um, life-saving in some instances. Um, and you need to know how to do that. And you need to train uh, the people that are going to be with you how to either also do those skills that you do or how to help you accomplish some of those advanced tasks. So what are some of the trade-offs of having a DCR team that's, that's far forward like that? One, we don't have any surgeons with us, right? Um, in, in this particular permutation of a, of a, of a team that's gonna go far forward with a soft unit. So limited surgical capability. Right. We can do some surgical things. Uh, Dan can obviously can do a, a, a thoracotomy if, if we have the tools available to us, but that's about it. We're, we're not open in bellies. We're not um, fixing vascular injuries um, surgically. Um, and uh, as a medical team, when you're that far forward, you incur a greater risk of exposure. You're not necessarily in a protected location um, at, at a base, although we should also recognize that being um, at an MSS or FOB doesn't make you immune from injury from enemy attack, but you certainly, if you're going to go outside the wire uh, and you're going to operate where some of these units are operating, you're going to incur the same um, or pretty similar amounts of risk that, that those operators are also incurring that has to, to go into your calculus as well, the calculus of the ground force commander um, about the kind of risks that, that you all are willing to incur based off of the mission that that is in front of you. Also, if, if, uh, if there's a DCR team that goes forward, they require seats, right? You have to be able to put, put them on a seat to get them um, with, to, to, to travel with you to get them onto the X, which means that there are potentially fewer seats for, for soft operators. Um, again, as we've highlighted, this is a very limited environment. It's not like we have, um, an unlimited number of vehicles or aircraft to take us places. There are a limited number of seats. So you have to decide who is going to fill that particular seat. Um, is it worth it to the ground force commander, um, to give those seats to you versus giving them to somebody else. Uh, also, what goes into that, that calculus as well is that, uh, you know, as medical providers, we're not soft operators. I think we, as we've said several times during this talk, um, we're not Green Berets and we're not SEALs. We're doctors and nurses, and we have limited formal training in um, those kind of tactical and operational tasks. That doesn't mean that those skills are beyond you. Um, but it does mean that as part of your training pipeline, you didn't necessarily learn how to uh, shoot from behind a barricade um, or operate a crow system 
or um, recover a stuck vehicle um, or learn the nuances of uh, passage of lines in the dark um, during uh, patrol base operations. Um, but you can learn those skills. Um, that's just not necessarily in your wheelhouse. We're considered non-combatants and we are also um, as such, typically we don't uh, carry or operate offensive weapons um, and we're afforded certain protections um, under the Geneva Convention. Um, that status is not a permanent status um, that can change. You can become a combatant depending on the particular situation that you're in. For instance, if you um, are not exclusively providing humanitarian aid or exclusively providing medical care, um, you um, may lose your protected status and may go from uh, non-combatant to a legal combatant. Um, those are legal questions um, that you will have to, to um, seek, seek counsel for um, in your sp specific set of circumstances. But that is something that um, should be considered um, by yourself, by the ground force commander, and by um, a higher headquarters. And so there are a lot of benefits to the DCR teams. I want to be very upfront about what, what the limitations are. I mean, uh, the biggest limitation for any of this is time. Um, to become proficient in the tactical tasks that we were talking about requires time, time for training. To truly integrate with the teams, uh, the maneuver elements that you're supporting requires time, time to familiarize, time to train, time to integrate. Um, and, you know, far forward advanced damage control resuscitation is not a panacea. You're not going to save every patient by being out there. And so um, how, how does that um, convey? How does that play with the um, maneuver elements that you're working with? Uh, and then it's critical. We all know that surgery is what fixes trauma. And so resuscitation, Blood product, product uh, resuscitation um, can sort of prolong the time that a patient can tolerate to surgery, but it, having a DCR team without a damage control surgical plan to back it up um, is, is irrational and you know, obviously going to be ineffectual. So we've talked a little bit um, about this conversation, this theoretical conversation with the ground force commander about, hey, here's a DCR um, team. They can support your operations. Uh, here are the capabilities that they add. Here are their limitations. Here are the um, things that they're going to need. But this is, I think, a, a very critical thing. And this is just a generic example of uh, what Eric and I used we provided basically a menu um, to our ground force commander and said, these are the different packages that we can do. Um, and there's a very uh, light package. There's a very robust package and you can figure out the duration based on you know, the number of days of operations that you can support or the number of casualties that, that you can treat. Um, but you've got to come up with something that says, Hey, 
these are our package options and this is the weight and cube that it requires because that's what you really come down to. How many seats are you taking up? How much of our cargo space do we need to give away uh, in order to bring you out there? And then, you know, that notes section of what are you adding? If I just bring one guy out there with his rucksack, I'm going to add advanced airway. If I add in, you know, another 250 pounds and a second uh, DCR team member, I can give you Reboa, thoracotomy, blood transfusion, um, et cetera. And so you want to have some type of menu of options for these DCR teams if you're going to offer them to a, uh, to a ground element. And so the other things that I will say are, are we need to mitigate our limitations and mitigate our risks as much as possible. And so self-sufficiency, uh, I think, is, is, is the overarching critical one, you know, in regards to security, um, life support needs, weight and cube, everything you want to be um, as minimal a burden on the maneuver element as possible. Um, field craft is what a lot of this comes down to. And then weapons proficiency, cross-training, making sure that you can fill um, needs and voids within the maneuver unit. And then rehearsals as much as possible in as, as deep as possible, um, rehearsing all of the various uh, tasks that you're going to need to accomplish. And, and this is something that helps you also build credibility uh, with the maneuver unit is you engage in their tactical rehearsals and work through the sort of, you know, tactical tasks that they rehearse over and over again. But then there's always a medical piece that comes into rehearsals and you can bring more fidelity um, and force them to sort of train that task to a higher level than they probably do when you're not there. Uh, and that can help you instill confidence with that maneuver unit that you, you really are, you know, you're the real deal. You are bringing uh, something to the, to the table. Um, and then integration and planning um, is important just for the sake of making sure that the expectations are realistic uh, and being able to, to be there and say, you know, just because you bring me out there and drop me in the middle of a swamp, uh, I, I'm not necessarily going to be able to save everybody's life no matter what happens. You know, so if you're not there at the table um, when the planning is ongoing, sometimes things can get uh, a little bit askew. Uh, and these next couple of slides, just, you know, some, some pictures like go out there, train with the guys that you're going to work with, do the things that they're doing, um, show them that you, you are competent, capable, and willing to get your hands dirty. Um, you know, we did a lot of weapons training and we did a lot of hoist training, uh, with our, um, both our evac team and our, our soft medics, um, and just make sure that everybody knew, Hey, we're, we're here. We're willing to do the same stuff that you guys are doing. Um, and, and that helped us to integrate. And then, uh, this next slide is a, is a recycle of, of the first picture that we loaded up there. Um, you know, this is me, Eric and, and our four seal medics. And there's a distinction between, uh, posing as an operator, looking cool, uh, trying to, to play a role and successfully integrating uh, with the people that you're supporting, living, working with on a day in, day out basis. It isn't about, um, you know, 
hyping yourself up. It is about uh, being able to speak the same language, walk the walk, uh, and look the look of, of the guys you're there with. Because if you stick out like a sore thumb, uh, nobody is, nobody's really going to trust you um, out in a far forward tactical environment like this. And, you know, I think in emergency medicine, we're, we're pretty good at this um, is in balancing those two things. You know, if, if I've got a, if there's a baby that needs to be delivered in the ER, I'm not going to deliver that baby. If there's an OBGYN standing next to me uh, and ready to go. Um, similarly, I'm not going to man a machine gun when there's a Navy steel Navy seal standing by ready to do the job. But in either one of those situations, I'm, I'm ready. I'm able to be the second best option if those people can't be there. Um, and it's, it's just being realistic and recognizing your limit, your limitations and your capabilities and being honest about those with, with everyone. All right. So kind of our, our conclusions about our, our, our DCS concept is that uh, an adequately prepared and motivated DCR team really can uh, bring something to the table in this environment. You can augment and enhance the capabilities of the organic medical assets of whichever maneuver element you happen to be supporting. And you can provide elements and uh, you can provide opportunities to mitigate the risk of being so far forward with so few resources. You can um, enhance the kind of care that those casualties are going to receive at the point of injury and potentially save lives. I think um, it's important to note that, you know, as, as Dan mentioned previously, the DCR far forward is not the end all be all. It is not a panacea. Um, we can't solve all the problems. We're not going to save every life on the battlefield. And it might not be appropriate to uh, put a DCR element forward in every circumstance. Um, those are specific questions um, and that's an answer to uh, a, a specific problem um, so there there is a time and place and there is a role in the correct circumstance and if you prepare yourself and you're able to successfully integrate and into the unit that you're supporting you really can uh, make a difference literally on the battlefield so in 2019, uh, the JTS published a CPG on, um, on austere resuscitative surgical care, um, which really uh, laid out a lot of those key concepts uh, that went into the creation of Erst and um, described in detail kind of what are the requirements for being able to do the kind of resuscitative and surgical care that's required in those types of settings and sort of what, what sets you apart um, from the sort of conventional um, medical surgical asset that uh, you might typically take. And that, that CPG was really designed um, to help prepare conventional surgical units to be able to take on these kinds of missions um, but that really provide does provide the opportunity to doctrinalize some of the, those concepts um, and um, and I think lays the foundation for not just a conventional 
assets, but also some uh, more permanent um, special operations, surgical assets um, as well. And so what are our recommendations for all of this? Um, you know, it, our experience um, being a DCR team providing uh, highly advanced, very far forward uh damage control resuscitative care to sort of the tip of the spear um, was um, mostly successful and rewarding for us and for the the people that we supported. Um, And, you know, we operated in a a special operations uh, sort of context, but uh, I personally believe that this is something that could be expanded to conventional forces as well um, in a sort of conventional warfare environment. Um, putting a DCR team on every mission makes no sense and isn't sustainable and requires uh, far too much risk and, and far uh, too many resources. But certainly there are higher risk missions um, where it, it does make sense. And I think the uh, the bridge to get to that point is, you know, within the virtual room of, of this conference. It, it's the, the, the people um, within our organization who can advocate for the capabilities that we can add and provide and the willingness of, of us to provide them um, that can sort of augment and enhance and, and uh, take farther forward these concepts of, of damage control resuscitation and, and make things better um, for the people who are out there defending our nation. Um, you know, one one way of thinking of it for me is that, you know, every, every infantry platoon in the U.S. Army doesn't need a damage control resuscitation team, but maybe every division does. And, and the, you know, highest risk missions it's an asset that could be requested and and support a maneuver element i mean that's just me spitballing it at pie in the sky doctrine but i, I do uh, i do think that there is a role for this and it needs to be uh expounded and, and developed so um really thank you all um for listening and uh we'll look forward to your questions in the uh, live q a session that's going to immediately follow this recorded lecture Uh, Thank you all. Thanks, Eric. GSASEP is proud to be the premier continuing medical education source for military and federal emergency physicians. To purchase CME for the episode you just listened to, please click on the link in the show notes. The Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians promotes quality emergency care and enhances the development of emergency physicians who serve our nation from training through retirement. Learn more about our chapter at www.gsacep.org.